Welcome to the 16th edition of the Movie Muse Film Club, where one of the crew chooses a film, we all watch it and then share our thoughts. I'm your host, Matt Corn, and with me, as always, are Simon Burton. Hello. And Gordon Sinclair. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. Our latest film was chosen by me, and I picked a film which was never officially released, the 1994 adaptation of Marvel's superhero team, The Fantastic Four. I was intrigued by this film having watched the documentary Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, on Amazon Video last year. We've all now watched that documentary and the film and we'll share our opinions on both. Back in the early 90s, superhero movies were a long way from the huge blockbusters we see now. Tim Burton's Batman, released in 1989, was the first successful big-budget superhero film since 1980's Superman 2, and as a result of its success, Marvel Comics began to license the rights to their characters to movie producers. German producer Bernd Eichinger secured the license for the Fantastic Four for an estimated $250,000 and attempted to secure a big-budget production with the likes of Warner Brothers or Columbia Pictures. But with no deal secured and the license due to expire at the end of 1992, he pursued another option in order to retain the rights to the film. He approached renowned low-budget producer Roger Corman, who agreed to produce a Fantastic Four movie for $1 million. Shooting took place late in 1992 with music video director Ole Sasson at the helm. The story was reasonably close to the origin story from 1961's Fantastic Four issue 1, with four astronauts being subjected to cosmic rays that gave them special powers, before facing their arch-nemesis Doctor Doom, who plans to use a large diamond to power a laser that will destroy New York unless the heroes allow him to harness their powers. The cast consisted of Alex Hyde-White as Reed Richards or Mr. Fantastic. The British actor had featured in sci-fi TV shows such as Battlestar Galactica and Book Rogers, as well as films including Biggles' Adventures in Time. The Human Torch, Johnny Storm, was played by former teen actor Jay Underwood, star of 80s films such as The Boy Who Could Fly and The Invisible Kid. His sister Susan Storm, The Invisible Woman, was played by Rebecca Staub, a former Miss Nebraska and experienced TV star. Rounding out the super team was The Thing, portrayed by two actors. Michael Bailey Smith played the character's human incarnation, Ben Grimm, while veteran stuntman Carl Carfalio donned an animatronic suit to play The Thing himself. The role of Victor Von Doom was taken on by Joseph Culp, son of actor Robert Culp, and a low-grade TV actor. Rounding out the cast were Cat Green as blind sculptor Alicia Masters, 
Ian Trigger as second tier villain, the jeweler, and there was even a cameo from George Gaines, Police Academy's Commandant Lassard, who played a university professor. Principal photography was completed on the film and trailers were screened promoting its upcoming release, but during post-production, Burned Eikinger was approached by Marvel Comics executive Avi Arad and asked to shelve the film so as not to ruin the franchise by releasing a poor quality production. Stan Lee has suggested that the film was never meant to be released, serving only as a means for Eikinger to retain the rights, but both producers refute those claims. Whatever the reason, the film was never released and all copies were supposed to be destroyed. However, due to the efforts of the director and his crew, the film was completed in a rough form and copies were eventually leaked into the bootleg video market and sold at comic cons and now of course it exists on youtube for the world to see this early marvel offering eichinger did retain the rights and along with avi arad went on to produce the 2005 big budget fantastic four film and its sequel rise of the silver surfer he passed away in 2011 Roger Corman is now 91 years of age but continues to produce low-budget films, while the director and most of the cast went on to have reasonably successful careers in film and TV. So that's the background to the film. Interest in this film, as I mentioned, all stemmed from watching the documentary Doomed. I've had a lot of strange experiences after all these years in the film business, but I have to say the Fantastic Four ranks somewhere near the top. It's clobbering. Strange. It was like a feeling that I've never experienced before. It's a piece of history. I never would have thought then, was it 20 years later, that I'd be sitting here talking about it. This thing just won't die. Expect trouble. I didn't know then, you know, all of the machinery that had been at work. It was the seedy, dark side of Hollywood. We really wanted people to see this. How many movies did Roger Corman make and never release? One. Wait a minute. Why, we're gonna let them take this movie away from us and not get anything out of it? We gotta show people that we made a movie. That's how you get another job. All this effort and time and all these, all the work that went into making that film and that pointless, meaningless. This film was never really intended to be a film. I said, oh yeah, you watch. I think this documentary is, is, I think it's about time. Hopefully, it might be like the last piece of this whole puzzle. The great untold, never seen version, the original Fantastic Four. Finally, after 20 years, this story is going to be told. Unfortunately, this version of the Fantastic Four really was doomed. <laughs> So we've all taken a look at that documentary now. That really gives the backstory that I've just been talking about and has interviews with most of the cast and crew that were involved at the time. So what do we think of it, guys? Gordon, what were your thoughts on the documentary? The story I thought was really fascinating and the idea that this film had to be made and had to be made quickly just to keep hold of the rights for the film is completely plausible and I absolutely believe that that's the reason why it was pushed as a low-budget film and they needed to do it as quickly as they did. I don't believe that it was never meant to be released. They could have cancelled the film many times prior to when they finally did. The story that the documentary tells about why and when the film gets pulled seems completely plausible. I thought the way they tell the story was quite disjointed, though, and seemed to jump about a bit. Some conversations seemed to be edited out of order, and you were being told stuff you'd already been told earlier on, and there were bits that felt like they were part of a different conversation. So as a documentary, you know, it's passable. It was a decent documentary. They spoke to all of the right people. 
probably not enough to people like Roger Corman, who had very few things to say, and what he did say was either cryptic or non-committal. But I suppose the film was always going to be on the side of the director and the actors. But I did definitely start to feel for the actors and what they put into it. But my biggest takeaway from the documentary, I think, is that the actors still seem quite deluded about how good the film could have been. They all thought this was going to give them a kickstart in their careers. And while they were making it, and since then, they still seem to think if it had just got released, big things would have happened. And... They wouldn't, you know, it probably would have been a real noose around the neck if it had got a proper release and people were paying money out for it. So I think they probably dodged a bullet by it never being released. So I do think that they're still a little bit deluded about the impact the film could have had. As a documentary, I quite enjoyed it. I don't think it was the best made documentary, but it was definitely a really interesting story told well. Yeah, I agree with a few of those points. Certainly, it seemed like what they did was they interviewed all the people involved, probably once each, and then tried to hack a documentary together out of it. But I do feel that it was quite funny in places. I particularly like when they were talking about the special effects guy who just didn't know what he was doing, the CGI special effects guy. And you do really start to feel for the people involved who, like you say, thought it was the big break. I don't think it would have been. I think it might have made a bit of money just because there weren't many superhero films around then. But the main thing I got out of it was it was quite a fascinating insight into a side of Hollywood you don't really get much exposure to where producers kind of wheel and deal and make decisions that could potentially make or break people's careers, you know, to actually go to the trouble of making an entire film and then pulling it at the end just because they're going to get a better offer from someone else to make a film was not something you hear about too often. So to hear the background around that story was quite interesting I think yeah and the rumours that they were paid 25 million dollars either for not releasing the film or for the rights for the next film or something the production guys um, Eichinger and Corman made a hell of a lot of money out of a 1.25 million investment and even though that film didn't get made they made a massive profit that probably kept them going for quite a while and like you say that's the kind of wheeling and dealing you don't know about but I found it quite fascinating the way they were showing the reuse of sets and how they kept the cost down was really interesting and some of the things that they were telling you like using the two actors for Ben Grimm and The Thing and the fact that the Ben Grimm character was much bigger than the guy they used for The Thing I'm not sure you notice it on film if you don't know that that's the case but when watching it after seeing the documentary and you know that then you can you can see that he does actually shrink when he becomes The Thing which is quite amusing Indeed yeah we'll get on to some of the interesting points about the film in due course Simon what were your thoughts on the documentary? but I've covered most of what it was about. Towards the end, even though you said the actors were deluded about it, I still felt quite sad for them to be involved in this and then it never got out. You know, it's just here or there now, whether it actually would have made any of their careers, it may have been bad for them, it may not, I don't know really. But it was interesting on the documentary. You know, like you say, the special effects guy hadn't got a clue what he was doing and the guy was saying it just went on for so long and they had to go to that Mr. Films guy, sort of like a thing in a, just a, a little office somewhere and he had to quickly cobble together some stuff to actually make some effects for it. And what I also found it very interesting but it doesn't reflect great on him was Stan Lee denying anything knowledge of it and the guy going well he came in every day even brought donuts so how could he say he was never involved or never there he was in all the time talking with us and bringing stuff in 
that was an interesting point. It was interesting, though, that Stanley said in his Comic-Con interview that it's the last Marvel film that we won't do ourselves, that we won't have control of. Mm. That, that was quite interesting, especially seen as even after that film, they didn't own the rights to the Fantastic Four. So Eichinger could have gone off and just done another film without them. So maybe them characters are the only ones that he meant rather than that particular film. I don't know, but we're going to have total control from then on and look what they've done with it. So maybe Stanley was right and it had been better for them if that had never happened in the first place. Yeah, that was one of, I think, only three films that Marvel had licensed out in the sort of early 90s. There was The Punisher, which starred Dolph Lundgren, and I think was pretty much a director video, and also the Captain America film from 1990, and they were both pretty universally panned. So yeah, Marvel didn't have a lot of control over their early year of the superhero movies in the early 90s, so that's presumably what Stan Lee was talking about, was they'd sold these rights when Marvel was in trouble in the 80s to try and get a bit of money in, and the result was not very favourable for them okay thanks chaps let's give the documentary a rating out of five then obviously a documentary rating out of five isn't necessarily comparable to a film rating out of five i've actually rated this on the movie muse website at the time i watched it i really enjoyed it it's probably got a few issues with it that i didn't really think about at the time but i actually rated it four out of five because i really enjoyed the sort of hard luck story of the actors and the crew that were involved and i found that really engaging simon I agree with you with the hard luck story and it was an interesting documentary to see what happened with the film you know I didn't know any about that backstory of it at all so it's not kind of documentary I would sit and just think oh yeah I'm trying to wish it away it was very interesting so I'll give it three and a half out of five okay thanks and Gordon yeah well as just taking the mechanics of a documentary I thought it was very basic but the story it told the characters that were involved and also the fact that I watched the film before I'd seen the documentary then watched the documentary and then watched the film again and what I got from the documentary made me have a different opinion of the film so I think it did what it was supposed to do as well but scoring it on the whole I gave it three out of five. Yeah, I mean, this is why I wanted to watch this film was because of that documentary. I really had no interest in watching the film until I'd seen the documentary. So it definitely does give you a different perspective and it kind of makes you want to watch the film just out of pity, really, for all the people that are involved in it. It's clobbering time. We've all watched the film, so let's move on to that. I've already covered the plot, and it's a pretty basic origin story plot and a bit of a fight with Doctor Doom and this made-up villain called the Jeweler. So let's just get on to the review of it. Simon, do you want to go first on this? Okay, thanks, Matt. I actually watched the documentary first, so knowing what actually happened with the film, when I started watching it, I didn't think it was that bad, to be honest. I just thought the actors tried hard. I think the acting was that bad. The effects obviously weren't great in places, but I've seen a lot worse. Well, we've seen a lot worse on the film club and other parts of our movie news careers. I thought the characters interacted pretty well with each other. Nothing too exciting, to be honest, for the actual story of the film. I knew straight away, without even knowing the storyline or the plot, the baddie was going to be their guy, Victor, that they lost. I don't understand how at the hospital, and you knew he was still alive, I don't know how those two guys came to be involved with him. I thought they were working on behalf of somebody else, but it seems like they were just like his minions, and the next time you see him, once he's become the bad guy... I just think they didn't do too bad when you think of the way they had to recycle the sets from that Carnosaur or something. They said that's part of the stuff they had to use was from that previous film. 
and they were working in a condemned shed somewhere in the backwater of Hollywood. It wasn't even in a proper studio. Didn't get some of the plot of it. I didn't know with the little guy that turned up. It looked like something out of a fantasy film coming out the drain. And then I don't know what the whole side of that part of the story was about. It didn't really fit in with the rest of it. I know he did things that affected them, but I just thought the underground people was not what I expected at all from a superhero film. But on the whole, they didn't do a bad job of what they had to work with. And I actually got some enjoyment out of it, So, which is quite surprising, to be honest. Yeah, some interesting points there. I imagine Gordon's probably going to be a little bit more critical than that in terms of his feelings about the acting in particular. So, Gordon, do you want to go next? There's the one person who's watched it twice with watching the documentary in the middle. Yeah. Tell us your thoughts before and after. Okay, there are two versions of this film available. One of them is like a VHS quality release, and one of them is direct from the print. And I watched the poor quality one first, so that also, as well as not understanding the story and not having any context to how little money they had to make the film and the issues that they went through. So having no context at all and watching this poor quality print of the film, I, I was astonished that it was actually made in the 90s and not in the early 80s. It was really, really poor in terms of the set, the acting. The script was pretty poor. I couldn't tell whether they were trying to make it into a flat-out comedy, almost musical bit at some points, especially when The Jeweler was on. It seemed to turn into a different film, and I really couldn't get my head around what they were trying to do. And it just seemed like everything was a disaster. And I watched it, and I immediately just thought, well, that's a one-star film that I wish I'd never sat through. But then I watched the documentary and got that context and then watched the better quality release so I could see the effects better. Everything seemed more like an actual movie and not like a rough cut that had somehow been sneaked out. And I really changed my opinion on pretty much everything about the film. The acting I had more time for. Don't get me wrong, there are some terrible, terrible actors in that film. And there was a lot of things that are wrong that you know are wrong when you watch it, but it's only when you watch the documentary you find out just how wrong they are, such as Dr. Doom, all of his audio being recorded while he's got the mask on. So everything he says is kind of muffled and a little bit hard to understand. And the actor himself was saying in the documentary that he wishes they'd just let him go back and record it. You know, he'd use his own time to re-record it just so it can put that right because it bothers him that much. So there's a lot of things that are wrong with it. But the story's not that far off what the story was in the later film. So, you know, I'm not got too much problem with that. In the end, it turned out to be a good low-budget film rather than a good film. Taking all the limitations and all the issues they've had into account, it's actually a good film. If you don't care about any of that, so pretty much anyone who hasn't read about it or watched the documentary, it's a very bad film. So I think it's all down to your context of how you're watching it. You've actually echoed exactly some of the points I had, good and bad. The bad points certainly do outnumber the good. It's really camp. It's like Batman in the 60s camp. And in fact, there's a bit where the Fantastic Four logo kind of zooms out to the screen and then back again, just like the Batman logo used to do in the TV show in the 60s. As you said, the acting's universally awful, to be honest, especially Jay Underwood, who was the guy who played the Human Torch. Also, Joseph Culp, the guy who played Doctor Doom. Most of his scenes, he just seemed to be there to just laugh maniacally and do very little else. 
there's very little action in it presumably due to the lack of budget they've got the one sort of fight scene at the end and a couple of other little fight scenes and otherwise there's a lot of them just standing around in a room discussing whether they should become superheroes or not the cgi effects are pretty terrible but it was very early in the cgi era in the early 90s even now in the sort of sci-fi channel films the cgi still looks terrible and that's when technology's come on 20 years since then so i don't hold that against it too much the costumes though were even worse there's a couple of exceptions but the fantastic four costumes they're actually quite accurate to how they looked in the early comics but that's not a good thing you know they're just awful blue spandex with those big white neckline things on they're just terrible there's some bizarre scenes and plot points the thing that really baffled me about it was the two sort of love stories so you've got ben Grimm and alicia masters who is a character from the comics they meet once and he breaks something of hers and she falls in love with him for some reason couldn't quite understand that and also reed richards and susan storm they're shown in an early scene where susan storm is a good 10 to 15 years younger than reed richards and she's like besotted with him it suggests and then 10 years later they're like in love with each other and that's kind of a bit creepy (laughs) i had exactly the same thought about that and creepy was exactly the word that i would use i was quite disturbed by the reed richards and sue storm thing yeah, that didn't work for me at all. I don't really get Victor Von Doom's motivation for being mad at Reed Richards either. I mean, in the scene in the beginning where he gets seemingly killed in the lab, he's the only one left in the lab and he's like, I must make this experiment work. And yet somehow afterwards he blames Reed Richards. I think this is just a problem with low budget films as they don't think it through. It's funny what you mentioned earlier because one of the things I jotted down was the thing being tiny. You don't notice it that often, but there's one scene where they're all stood with each other and the thing's actually shorter than Johnny storm and reed richards so that was quite funny and the last bad point really is the post-production issues but they're all kind of explained in the documentary mainly the one that you mentioned about dr doom being unintelligible behind the mask and i think you just have to forgive that because you know it's not the final cut certainly the last 15 20 minutes of the film were definitely not finished based on what they said in the documentary but i think there are a few good points i think the script and the delivery of the script were mostly terrible but the story was all right and like you say not that different from the 2005 version and the one thing I did think was the score was pretty good it's fairly similar to John Williams stuff some of the stuff definitely sounds like it could have been in Star Wars or Jurassic Park but I think that was helped by the fact that the composers David and Eric Wurst personally contributed $6,000 to finance an orchestra to actually play the score so that actually is the one part of it I think was pretty decent and also I think the costumes for Doctor Doom and The Thing weren't that bad The Thing the animatronic costume was actually I didn't think any worse than the Teenage Mutant Ninja turtle costumes from the same sort of era they definitely spent a bit of money on that and it seemed to work pretty well in the very few scenes it was actually in so overall it's a terrible low budget nonsense film but it wasn't utterly utterly awful it's funny about the score because i was listening to it and i definitely could hear jurassic park a number of times in that score but it just made me laugh that the score's probably too good for the film and i was thinking that the best thing about the film was from the worst brothers which was quite amusing (laughs) Yeah, the sort of fight scene music towards the end was just the TIE fighter battle scene from Star Wars, you know, where the Malian Falcon's facing the TIE fighter. And yeah, you could definitely hear the Jurassic Park stuff, although this was actually produced roughly the same time as Jurassic Park, so that could have been a coincidence. Yeah. 
you're right about the costume for the thing. I was quite impressed with that. And it definitely reminded me of the Ninja Turtles. They used probably the same animatronic technology for the way the mouth moved. You know, the facial stuff was all really good. I thought it looked really ugly, the head, but it worked really well. I was expecting the thing to be really poor because I knew the film was poor and it wasn't. It was actually quite good. Yeah, that was the one thing they spent some of the budget on where it actually worked, wasn't it? Mm. One scene that I didn't get was the bit where they're in space, they've got the wrong diamonds, the ship blows to smithereens, but they all end up all right on a planet. I know they've got superpowers, but how the hell did the ship blow up into bits and spam in a proper explosion and then it lands in chunks directly back onto the planet on the ground? Really close together as well, despite it breaking up miles and miles above the Earth's surface. (laughs) Yeah, that was just a bit strange. Oh, you've just been picky now. Okay, (laughs) I won't mention any more because we may talk about it in a bit. Well, let's move on then to the scenes and normally we do best scene best line and best character but because this is a notoriously bad film we're going to do worst of all those things instead so let's start with worst scene simon you seem to be quite keen to tell us yours so go ahead it's not a big scene but it's when johnny storm chases after the laser towards new york he goes along the animation doesn't look too bad at the start he looks a bit like the thing actually when you see his face as the cartoon comes towards you but he gets to building in new york and then he gets hit by the green laser and the animation it's like a piece of cardboard just spinning <laughs> around it's absolutely shite it made me just absolutely howl with laughter because it was just so bad him just this, almost like Mr. Ben or something, just spinning around in the sky and just him going, oh, 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 oh. and then he just goes towards a building. You've got the whole of New York, which looks like a tiny little village with one skyscraper in it. And the laser's tiny, so compared to one building, it would have literally probably slightly touched the building and made a little mark on it because it looked massive going towards it. But when he was trying to push it away, the laser was only a line that would literally only like mark the wall. The scale was a bit out there, I think. But I just found that whole scene was absolutely terrible. That scene was brilliant in how bad it was. And it's like you say, it was the noises he's making as he's spinning around. It reminded me, you know, when you're playing a video game, some old game that's not got enough frames of animation, you touch something you're not supposed to and you flip around or something. The noises it was making was like you just keep doing that over and over again and it just keeps repeating these really weird sounds. And it's a shame because that start bit, you know, where the flames first happen and he goes up vertically, that was really well done. It was just as soon as the left that room and he's flying off to chase this laser and i love the way it was almost at the window of the building before he stops it it was shockingly bad that yeah it had potential but it definitely didn't continue that potential so what was your worst scene then gordon if it wasn't that one well mine's pretty much the one that simon mentioned earlier it's when they've crashed in space and then i don't know where they're supposed to be i don't think they actually tell us where they are but it looks to me that they're just in a park in Glasgow where some kids have lit a bonfire because there's just a bit of rubbish here and there, you know, broken bits of metal, and there's a fire, a small one. It just didn't look like a crash site. It was just, you know, a hill with a little fire. I know that they said some of the on-location stuff was difficult and very last-minute, but that was just shocking. Certainly nothing had crashed there. And the whole thing where they're working out the powers and Sue Storm disappears. But, you know, for a start, in this one, 
and her clothes go invisible. So if her clothes are going invisible, why is the ground not? Why do some things go invisible and not others? Whereas in the 2005 one, obviously, you could still see her clothes and she had to go naked to be completely invisible. And that made sense. But just, you know, her legs aren't showing, <laughs> but the rest of her is. And that was all just completely crazy. Yeah, she um, just showed up and like, she's going, where's my legs? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the way she falls backwards. And they've not set up that there's a big spike behind her. And Reed has to stick his extended arm out to catch her. And it was just so badly set up and delivered. It was a really poor scene. You can see what they were trying to do, but it just wasn't working. Oh, it's obviously she's in a park in Glasgow. Someone's nicked her legs, mate. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Well, they were both terrible scenes. But my worst scenes, only a short scene, but it was just so bad. And it was where Ben and Reed go to the Storm household and invite them to be astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> There's absolutely no suggestion that they're in any way capable of being astronauts. Prior to this scene, they just turn up and literally knock on the door and say, can Johnny and Susan come out and be astronauts with us? And it's just like, that was just like something from a little house on the prairie sort of TV show. It was just absolutely dreadful. I couldn't work out whether he was being deliberately silly or whether that was actually real or not. <laughs> Was he just playing up to the mum because he knows her and they get on and they're having a laugh for Was that actually a part of the plot? I don't know. I'd like to hope it was the former. Yeah. And then she just like jumps up and gives him a hug and stuff. It's like, it would be like, my kids don't know anything about being astronauts. Why do you want to take him <laughs> into space? It was a bit bizarre. The other scene that I thought was similarly camp was the scene where the doctor's trying to get blood samples from all of them and they all keep using the powers on him. Again, it was just so cheesy. It was just a montage of these cheesy scenes where Susan Storm disappears and reappears behind him, grabbing onto him and stuff like that. It was just terrible. There was just one other that was when the spaceship takes off on the top of the building. That's one of the worst scenes of a spaceship moving in a film that I've ever seen in my life. It was just so bad the way it just took off. And then suddenly scale of it moving towards you. It's as if it's like a cartoon as it takes off and then moves off the building and comes towards you. It suddenly gets really big really quickly and so it looks like it's a model. Yeah, it was a bit strange. And the interior of the spaceship was awful as well, wasn't it? It was like something from Blake 7 and they've got all the like, tinfoil astronaut suits on as well. They're trying to make it look like they're bumping around. It's obviously the camera's just moving and they're not actually moving themselves. Yeah, it was a bit crazy. Okay, well, let's move on to worst character. Gordon, do you want to tell us your least favourite character from the film? I think it's more the portrayal of the character because the character himself in the comics I quite like, but it's Johnny Storm. Every scene that he's in, I was cringing. So, yeah, absolutely terrible. I don't think there was a single thing good about Johnny Storm in that film except for that first bit where he goes fully flame on and he's going off after the laser, which isn't actually him. It's CGI. That's the only bit I like about Johnny Storm. Yeah, he never actually fully flames up until that scene either, no. so his whole idea of being the human torch is non-existent until the yeah. last five minutes of the film. He's the human cigarette lighter up until that point. Simon, how about you? What was your worst character? Pretty much the same, I'm afraid. The way he acted, even before he really got the fire, just his whole persona, I just didn't enjoy, I didn't like it at all. And what made me laugh is in that scene, when they're in the letter of Doctor Doom, he starts firing fire around the place. Um, it's just dreadful. It's, every time he shoots fire out, he misses everything, it just hits walls. The whole character was just rubbish, wasn't it? He tries to put a hole in the wall, and it takes the thing to smash it down. They go, oh, haven't you broken through yet or something? I'm trying, I'm trying, but he didn't really do anything in the whole film, apart from the end, when the cardboard version of him stopped the laser. In fact, that cardboard thing spinning around was acting better than the actual actor. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the other character that was completely pointless 
Was she called Alicia or something like that? I mean, what was that about? You said earlier she fell in love really quickly just because he broke something and she touched his face. But then to bring her back into it for no reason again, they've suddenly made some head cast to be able to make their space helmets. Is that what they do? Make you a personalised helmet? I don't think that actually happens. So she's got these casts and that's how she finds out he's dead. Well, he's not dead, but she thinks he is. Because she's going to use these casts to make a memorial statue. And it's like, you've thrown this in for no reason. Just take that character out. You don't even need her. Yeah, and then she was kind of the catalyst for the thing becoming a hero a little bit later on. As I mentioned, she is a character from the comics, so they obviously had the rights to use that character. That's pretty much what she does in the comics, as far as I can tell. She's kind of an empathic figure for the thing and other characters. I'm probably doing a disservice as well, because she is the jeweler's queen as well, isn't she? So (laughs) she does have a plot arc. But she adds nothing other than she adds a bit of substance to a character who adds nothing in the jeweller, who really doesn't have much to do in it. Even though I actually quite liked the jeweller, he seemed to me to be an absolute rip-off of the Penguin. But he was absolutely fine as a bad guy. And I probably would have preferred more of his story than less of Doom's, to be honest. But that whole jeweller, Alicia Masters and whatever, they could have dropped all of that and made it into a 45-minute TV movie. Well, my worst character was also the Human Torch, but my backup worst characters were Doctor Doom because of the terrible acting and stupid laugh, and the jeweller, as you've just said, he was just a weird, out-of-place villain that should have been in a Batman show, and I guess that's because they made him up for this film, he was not anything from the comics, so he was on the screen way too long for my liking, but we obviously like to differ on at least one point, don't we? Yeah, I quite liked him, but I'll also differ on Doctor Doom as well, and I only think I like him because I liked the guy who played him when he was talking in the documentary. He was the most engaging person and I absolutely loved him because he was probably the one who was the most deluded (laughs) about this film, but he cared so much about it and he put everything into the character. So I can't remember what I thought of him the first time I watched the film, but when I watched it the second time after the documentary, I thought he was great. Yeah, and he did have a good maniacal laugh, to be fair, which he used a lot. Let's move on then. We've done worst scene and worst character, which just leaves worst line. I'm going to go ahead with mine first, and you might have already guessed it. It's, can Johnny and Susan come out and be astronauts? Which is from the scene I mentioned earlier from Ben Grimm. So what about you guys? Well, I did make a note of that one, but I did then change it. There's a line, and I can't remember what's just happened, but Johnny Storm says, holy Freud, Batman. And I know they're trying to be funny, putting Batman into a Marvel film. I just thought, that's just terrible. You're not scoring any points for that. Holy Freud, Batman. Yeah, it's just after they work out that all their powers are basically reflections of what they feel worst about themselves or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, that was on my list of terrible lines as well. Simon? Mine was when Dr. Doom escaped from his lair and he walks back in. He goes, right, my friends. And then he just stares at the hole for a longer time than what you would expect him to stare at a hole in the wall knowing that they've escaped. And he just goes, oh, and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember that. It's just the way he says it. Oh, as if to say, how dare they escape out of my lair? 
that line for me was just, oh my God, what was that about? It's just the length of time while there's no sound and he's just staring at the hole. It's just a little bit too long. Maybe he'd actually forgotten his line and he was waiting for someone to tell it. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't have enough time to record it, it, another tea. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, it was definitely amusing, wasn't it? Whether it was meant to be is another question, but it's certainly entertaining in that respect. Can I just go back to something Simon said earlier? Because it was something that really bothered me in the film. And it's the two henchmen stealing the body of Doom. Because he's not a bad guy up to that point. So how do they know him and why are they stealing him? And it's not like they're stealing him for their own use because he becomes their boss. The scene with Commandant Lassard in at the beginning when they walk out of the university, those two characters are sat there keeping an eye on them. But I don't know why. It feels like there's a few bits where the scene's missing. There should be something a little bit more just to explain a bit. And not that I'd want, you know, the runtime extending on this film, but I think it misses some things out. Yeah, and put some things in that we really didn't need as well. Yeah. Also, that bit at the end which was funny, the scene at the end when he's got married and his wavy arms going out the sunroof <laughs> of the car. <laughs> that was dreadful as well, by the way. Of all the effects, Mr. Fantastic's stretchiness was definitely the worst. But yeah. to end the film on that shot <laughs> of the, the way I wonder what else he stretched that night on his wedding night. Right, there we go. You've got such bad Fantastic Four suits and you're going to get married in them as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah brilliant okay well as always with film club we end with a little summary of our thoughts and a rating so i'll go first i do think if they managed to finish the film it seems like the crew were dedicated enough to polish it up as well as they could but in the end the terrible acting and low production values couldn't be avoided it probably still would have made maybe a couple of million at the box office until word got around how bad it was because of the lack of superhero movies at the time and with another million dollars added to the budget, it might actually have been a half-decent film. But as it stands, it's a pretty terrible film. It's a typical low-budget jobby, and I'm going to go with two out of five. Simon? I agree. There was a bit of confusing plot lines. You know, the acting isn't great, but the effects aren't great. But I actually quite enjoyed it. So I'm going to go for two and a half. Okay, and Gordon? Well, I've seen it twice. The first time I watched it with no context of what they'd gone through to even make the film in the first place. And watching it with no context, I gave it one star. But then after watching the documentary, reading up a little bit about it and watching a better quality release, I completely changed my opinion. And I got a lot of enjoyment out of watching it the second time. And it is a film that I'm sure I'll watch again at some point. It's certainly not a fire and forget film for me. I actually got quite a lot of enjoyment out of it. A lot of it for the wrong reasons, but it was an enjoyable film. So I'm going to give it two and a half stars as well. That gives a Movie Muse rating for the never-released Fantastic Four from 1994 of 2.3. And that puts Fantastic Four 15th on the Film Club leaderboard, second bottom between Star Crash in 14th and Party Party now in 16th. I think that's unfair. (laughs) You think it's unfair? I think Star Crash should be below it. That concludes our review of the Fantastic Four. Now it's over to Gordon to pick our next film club. Okay, for our next film club, I've chosen David Bowie's 1976 acting debut in Nicholas Rogue's The Man Who Fell to Earth. Based on a 1963 novel of the same name, it's the story of an alien who travels to Earth to obtain water for his drought-ridden planet, only to crash his spacecraft and have to enter the cutthroat tech industry to raise the billions required to fix his ship and return home. It's a film that I saw in the early 80s when I was too young to understand or appreciate it, so I'm keen to see why it's got its cult status, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Okay, sounds interesting. So we'll check that out and that will be the subject of our next Film Club podcast. 
that's all for this film club you can see our summary of our thoughts on the fantastic four on our film club post on the website along with all our previous film club reviews and we'll be back with another podcast in the near future but for now from myself and my two fantastic friends it's goodbye